Amen. Good morning. Thank you, team. Thank you, Wes, for uh, leading this morning. Uh, Jesse was off today for the first time in I don't know how long, uh, frankly. Uh, certainly since the beginning of school in the fall, probably a month or two before that. But he had a good reason. Um, he and uh, Caitlin got engaged this weekend. They were up in New York City, and so Jesse was engaged. Woo! So um, uh, couldn't happen to two nicer people. So when you see them, please hug them, congratulate them, uh, and also thank Jesse for all the time he puts in here. I really didn't think about that until uh, he said he wasn't going to be here. I was like, oh my gosh, he hasn't missed a Sunday in forever. So thank you to Wes and thank you to the team for, for doing a great job in his absence. Uh, hi, my name is Scott LeGraff. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm one of the elders here. I'm also a professor up at the university. And today we're going to be finishing up our Advent series. Um, and then next week, we're going to start a series on Colossians, which will take us all the way up to Easter. Keith will kick that off next week. Uh, Colossians, amazing uh, letter from Paul to the church at Colossae uh, in, uh, in the New Testament. Wonderful, wonderful book. And uh, it's going to be a really, really fruitful time. And so it's going to be really exciting. And you don't want to miss it. So we'll kind of kick off the semester next week when all the students should be back, not just the, the faithful students who are better than everyone else. Shh. Um, but when all the students come back and, uh, um, and, and the semester gets started, I'm kidding. That's recorded. Great. Nice, Scott. What a way to go. Um, so uh, uh, anyway, that'll, that'll start next week. So at Advent, right? Advent is, is this traditional time in church history where, or, or historically where the church has focused on the first coming of Christ. And it culminated in Christmas. And some of you may have, have grown up with Advent wreaths. We always had one in my house where we'd have a lifesaver every day. We'd untie every day and we'd get a lifesaver. And then on Christmas Day, we got two candy canes and it was a really big deal. Um, and so this has been part of church history and tradition for, for a long time, and it's a focus on, as I said, the first coming of Christ, but, but wrapped up in that is a focus or looking forward toward the second coming of Christ. And so we had uh, four weeks where we explored different passages that relate to one of those two themes. And uh, an undertone or a tension that I think that we feel when we study Advent, study the first and second coming, or Advent, that's what Advent means, of Christ, is there's this tension between already and not yet, right? Christ's coming already ushered in a new age, and things changed for us uh, forever, and yet what the Bible refers to as this present age is still here, and so there's this kind of this cognitive dissonance between what is and what we know should be, and what we expect will be, and, um, and we're living this, this time that, that some scholars have called the overlap of the ages. That's where we find ourselves. So if we look back at, at the passages we've studied, we find that perhaps there's some loose ends, right? So Keith looked at Isaiah chapter 7, which is that famous passage where, where the coming Christ is promised, and he, was, he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And of course, with the coming of Christ, God himself was with us in the person of Christ. And when he left the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit came in and dwells believers. And so, in a very real way, God is with us. And yet, um, it's easy to doubt. And yet, it's easy to not sense his presence, to question, are you really there? Right? Is this all there is? Uh, we also looked at Isaiah chapter 9, which is, a, a, again, another very famous passage about light 
piercing darkness. And we saw the fulfillment of that in Christ. And John chapter 1 talks about how Christ was, uh, was the light of men and the darkness could not overcome it. So we have this picture of Christ, the promised light, shining in the darkness. And then we, as bearers of Christ's image, take that light out into the darkness. And yet, even though we have the Holy Spirit, even though the light has come, there's a lot of darkness, right? We only need listen to the news for 30 seconds. <laughs> you know, where's a sitcom, right? Where's some sports? Um, and, uh, and we're reminded that the darkness is all around us. Christ shines in the darkness, and yet there is still darkness is very much a real part of our lives. Uh, Michael took us through Romans chapter 8, which talks about all of creation groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right? Uh, and, and tied up in that is an expectation that something big is on the horizon, but it's not here yet. Uh, a constant reminder that our sin has stained the entire universe, the entire physical creation, as well as spiritual creation, that nothing remains unaffected, and we're waiting for that renewal. And then Roman last week took us through Second Peter, um, a reminder of, of how we wait, that we are indeed still waiting for God's return, right? We have these promises of a perfect, redeemed creation, and yet I think it's, uh, we can feel like kids in the back seat on a long trip, right? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And, and our sense of time as a child in the back seat or as a human being on this creation is skewed and is not the same as the Lord's sense of time. And, and in Second Peter, he reminds us that, in fact, he's actually waiting so that everyone who is going to repent will have the opportunity to repent and turn to him. Uh, and tied up in those promises, I think, I think back to the promises to Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 12, right? That, that first promise where he says, through you, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, and through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So hang on to that idea of the nations, right? So we have these questions hanging over us. And so with that, we're going to turn now to Revelation chapter 21. Um, and in this chapter, we see the, the culmination of history. What, uh, what we are looking forward to is our shared destiny. And I think we're finally going to get some answers here. But some quick notes on Revelation, right? Jumping into the, <laughs> the middle of Revelation, really, it's like one of these things I'm like, what, what are you doing, Scott? You're jumping right into the middle of the most difficult book in all of Scripture. Um, so just a, a quick note on Revelation, right? This is a highly metaphorical book, not obscure, meaning these aren't like odd symbols that we have to, to, to put together in some kind of cryptography code and, and figure it out, but it's highly metaphorical and it, and it assumes that its readers have a great, very in-depth knowledge, especially of the Old Testament, the New Testament as well, but the Old Testament, okay? And so these images come up time and time again. And, and the book of Revelation paints big pictures. I'm going to do my best to focus on the big picture and not to bog down in the minutiae. Uh, I love minutiae, so I'm going to try not to, to, to get caught up in that, but to paint the big pictures. Now, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> when I say the word metaphorical <coughs> in relation to Scripture, undoubtedly there are a lot of us here who get a little nervous, our palms get a little sweaty, and, and you think that I'm saying because I, something is metaphorical, I'm saying that it's not real. That is not what I'm saying. Okay, <clears throat> if I say to you, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> not that, <clears throat> if I say to you I have a frog in my throat, um, none of you is going to look in there and expect to see a green thing 
pop out, right? You understand what I'm saying. I'm talking about something very real, something that I just demonstrated inadvertently, um, but uh, expressed in a way that was very real, very concrete, or not concrete, was very real, but was talking about a concrete thing and a very real thing just with metaphorical language. That makes sense, all right? We all on the same page there? So if I say something in Scripture, and I'm not saying that all of Scripture is this way, but when we get to the, to the book of Revelation, especially at the end, there is metaphorical language. Um, that doesn't mean that things aren't real. That doesn't mean, well, that doesn't mean that things aren't real, okay? It just means that they're talked about metaphorically. <clears throat> I don't have an actual frog in my throat, but I'm talking about an actual thing that just happened in front of all of you, right? Are we on the same page there? Okay. <clears throat> so let's look now at Reve Revelation uh, 21, uh, verse 1. Then, and we have to stop, right? So <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, one of the principles of Bible study, right? We can't go on. We can't read past a word then, especially if we're jumping into something here completely out of context. If we've been preaching all the way through the book of Revelation and we just preached on Revelation 20, we could continue. But I need to take, I need to stop. And so if in your personal Bible study, you, you study a passage just in and of itself, and it starts with a word like then, or therefore, or for, or because, what it's saying to you is that what is about to follow is completely contingent upon, or dependent upon, what just came before, right? So, a quick summary of what happened in Revelation chapter 20, and then we'll press on. So, Roman, Roman said last week, it was a, a beautiful phrase, he said that throughout the Bible, God shows up to bring judgment and rescue, right? Did I get that right, Roman? That, that throughout Scripture, God shows up to bring judgment and rescue to the people, uh, to his people. <clears throat> so, chapter 21, where we're going to spend most of our time today, is the ultimate and final rescue. Chapter 20 is the ultimate and final judgment. And it's uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable for our modern Western society. The thought of judgment is not something that we handle or that we, that we deal with well. But uh, very, very, very concisely, <clears throat> Revelation 20 shows us what is called the white throne judgment. God, John sees a vision of God seated on a big white throne. We, we get images of, of power and purity uh, and authority on this throne, and all of creation, everyone who has ever lived, is resurrected to stand before him, okay? All of us are eternal. Those who know Christ, those who don't know Christ, we are all, have been created to be eternal beings, okay? A little funky, our heads are smoking already, right? We don't really think about this kind of thing. <clears throat> there, there will come a day when everyone will stand before the Lord, and to make a long story short, there are going to be two groups. Going to be, there's going to be a group whose name, names are written in the book of life. Scripture shows us that that means that we are trusting in those who have trusted in Christ. God's provided sacrifice. God's provided means for salvation. There's, there's that group. And then there's a group who will be judged according to their deeds. That's what it says in chapter 20. Okay? Um, I'm just the messenger. And uh, we also find out in chapter 20 that ultimately those who are judged according to their deeds will be thrown into what Scripture calls the lake of fire. Now, probably metaphorical language for something that's probably a heck of a lot worse than a lake of fire. Um, 
but we also find out that Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, the beast, Revelation talks about the beast and the false prophet, um, those who, who have rejected God's provided sacrifice, and then ultimately death and the grave itself is thrown into this lake of fire. We think of that as, as God's place set aside for judgment, okay? Um, two quick thoughts on judgment, because I can't just throw that stuff out there <laughs> and then walk on. Uh, if you're not uncomfortable, you're not listening, I think. Um, but judgment, there's actually an element of good news to judgment, right? First of all, no one ultimately gets away with anything, okay? Nobody gets away with anything. That is, sexual molesters, um, the violent, the Hitlers, the, the Genghis Khans, the Maos, the whatever, the, the, the false teachers within the church, those who have, who have abused. I don't want to just make this look like I'm, I'm pointing outward, right? Those who have abused their authority and their position uh, within the church to, to take advantage of people, take their money to, to abuse them uh, in, in other ways, right? There, is, there will be an account. Everything will be paid for, and it will either be paid for by Christ's sacrifice or it will be paid for by the wrongdoer, right? Nobody gets away with anything. Now, the reason that's good news is because it frees us from the need and the right, frankly, to take vengeance, right? The Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. He is the only one who's in the right position, who sees it all, to, to make these judgments. And so we are free, and we can release people. This is, this is huge when it comes to forgiveness. We're releasing them into the Lord's hands. Not, he's going to get them, but... He's the one who is just. He is the one who is merciful. He is the one who is all-knowing. So we can set those people free from our past who actually hold us prisoner, right? There's probably a person or two who has, who has popped into your mind as I've talked about this, who, is, who has wronged you in some way uh, throughout your history, be it as a child or, or even much more recently. The concept of a final ultimate judgment allows us to release those people into the Lord's proper judging hands. Does that make sense? Okay, so it's actually in some ways good news. And, and there's so much more to be said on this, but we just can't, we can't camp here right now. So maybe someday we'll, we'll dig into that. So now we can go on past the first, ver first word in, in chapter 21, right? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth that passed away and the sea was no more. So new heaven and new earth, right? That's what was promised in, in Romans chapter 8. That's what we've been waiting all along for. This is it. We finally get it. In that white throne judgment, it, uh, uh, Scripture talks about all of creation, the creation actually kind of fleeing from God, being, purif uh, being purified in His or, or by His pure glory and radiance. And so now we have this new heaven and new earth. And now heaven and earth is an expression that means everything, right? We have earth here. We have heaven there. It's, it's like soup to nuts, A to Z. Everything has been renewed and made new, redeemed and purified. So we're not starting, he's not starting from scratch. He's not throwing the whole, you know, wadding the whole thing up and throwing it in the trash can, but rather the, the connotation here is one of renewal and purification of a transformed reality. And we see that in Christ when he was 
when he was resurrected, right, there was continuity with what we, we recognized him or they recognized him as Christ. He was the same guy, and yet he was in this transformed physical existence. That's what the whole creation awaits and finally is fulfilled here in, in uh, verse 1 of chapter 21. No more groaning, no more futility. That longing from Romans 8 has been fulfilled. The sea was no more. I'm actually going to skip that. I have answers on that, but I'm going to move on um, just because I promised you I wouldn't bog down in the minutia. Uh, then verse 2 says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. So this term, holy city, and New Jerusalem, again, Old Testament terminology, right? This has been promised certainly since the prophets. And this is a reference to God's messianic kingdom. So when Jesus tells us to pray, thy kingdom come, this is it. This is the kingdom, the ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom coming. Now it's significant that it says coming down out of heaven, coming down from God's space to the earth, right? Uh, and this is significant for several reasons. One, it's not man-made. This isn't the Tower of Babel. We are not going to be good enough where we can all get together and we, we pass the right laws and get the right leaders and get the right rulers and, and society is, is reformed to such a point that we ascend to heaven and, and the Lord says, all right, that's just what you know, we, were, we were waiting for or what I was waiting for. Um, we cannot reach God. We tried that at the Tower of Babel and it ended in judgment, right? Um, he must come to us. That is the history of redemption throughout Scripture. God came to Abraham and chose Abraham. God came and chose uh, the, the, the nation of Israel. God came to us in the person of Christ. God came to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And then ultimately here, at the end of time, God will bring his city, his place, his residence, as it were, um, his kingdom down to us. Okay? One other note on this. Our tendency when we think of this, of the end, when we think of heaven, what we call heaven, right, is, is, is that we get to leave. We get out. Ha, ah, we're saved and we're delivered from this nasty place. And we get to live in some disembodied spiritual existence for all eternity with grandma and grandpa and, and our dogs and, and et cetera, et cetera, right? What Scripture teaches us is not that we leave here and go to be with God, but that God brings heaven to earth. That is the orthodox, historical, scriptural teaching about our actual expectation. I don't know if that, if that um, blows a few minds or not, but that is what we're actually waiting for, okay, is a physical resurrection, a physically renewed creation, and then God's place, God's space, heaven coming to earth to dwell with redeemed and renewed mankind. It talks about the pure, uh, the, the um, coming down as a, I'm sorry, go back one, my fault. Uh, and I saw the Holy See uh, coming down, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, right? Pure, radiant, beautiful. And there's also that sense of expectation that, that comes with that. So uh, more uh, exciting uh, imagery that we have. Okay, let's go on to the next one. Verse 3. The dwelling place of God is with man, right? And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death, death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The dwelling place of God is with man, right? Remember Isaiah 7, Emmanuel, God with us, right? This is, again, that ultimate fulfillment of that. Yes, we have that in the person of Christ. Yes, we have that in the person of the Holy Spirit, but in a limited way, limited by physical beings. But in this uh, ultimate sense, the fullness of God's glory, the fullness of God's person will now come and dwell with His people just as it was in the garden, in unhindered, open fellowship. And more than that, the effects of the fall, the effects of the curse will be reversed, right? Death will be no more. Mourning, sadness, loneliness, uh, sorrow, all these things, spiritual separation, they will no longer exist as our relationship with God is fully 100% restored. Now, I'm going to call an audible here. Excuse me. I'm sorry. That frog, metaphorical frog, is still there. I had, uh, uh, actually, I I told them I was going to do 1 through 8. I'm going to skip down, and then to verse 22. I'm going to skip down to verse 22 right now. The the next passage, 8 through 21, or, or 5 through 21, is very, very cool. It's really, really awesome, but it's highly symbolic. We get a whole bunch of Old Testament stuff with the the priest's breastplate and all the gold streets and the gems and the jewels, and it's, it's, it's mind-blowing, and it would take us hours and hours and hours to unpack, okay? So we're not going <laughs> to. So I'm going to skip down to verse 22 because I really wanted us to focus on those loose ends that we kind of raised uh, thus far. And so verse 22 is where this continues. <clears throat> so, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. So what's the temple, right? The temple, the dwelling place of God. It started in the Old Testament as the tabernacle, uh, which was kind of a, a non-permanent structure. And then we had Solomon built the temple, right? And then in, in uh, John chapter 1, uh, 114, it says, and, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? That word dwelt is tabernacled or templed, so that Christ uh, was the fullness of God. The temple is the dwelling place of God. And so what this verse is saying here is that there will be no temple, God himself is the temple dwelling in his fullness with his people in his creation, right? It's, it's kind of amplifying or going along the themes that have already been raised in verses 1 through 4 of the chapter. So verse 23 then goes on and says, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Again, Jesus shone in the darkness, right? He was a bright light in the darkness that surrounded him. The darkness could not overcome that light, but there was a whole bunch of darkness. Now that is reversed, and the light actually drives the darkness out, right? That happens in that judgment, certainly in, in, in chapter 20. Sure, that'd be great. Thank you. <clears throat> um, thank you. Hopefully this will help. <clears throat> and... Uh, Okay, so that light, which at one time was holding, its, holding the darkness back, now actually comes to envelop and, and, and totally eradicate the darkness, right? So he talks about the sun and the moon. Um, there's no need for sun or moon. Again, I, I'm going to assert that this is probably metaphorical language, not that there won't be a sun or moon anymore, but rather... In, in relationship to the glory and the presence and the radiance of God, the sun and moon are useless, 
by comparison. Now, maybe there won't be a sun and moon, and that's certainly not a hill I'm willing to die on, but I would, I would assert that the point here is not about the nature of the physical creation and, and what the, the heavenly bodies are doing. The point here is that God's radiance is greater than the sun itself, which shines so brightly that illuminates everything we have. He will be exponentially greater in, in his, his proximity to us and his greatness. And, um, and remember that there was also that, that meaning of light that we studied with that Isaiah 9 passage as far as ignorance. Um, no, not, that's darkness. Um, <laughs> knowledge, understanding, uh, safety, um, righteousness. All those things are tied up in the idea of light. Okay, continuing on. Verse 24. Where is it? By its light will the nations walk. By the, the light of that temple, or the light of that city, will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Uh, I'll stop there for a second. Okay. So, the nations, right? Remember, we talked about that. I talked about that in relationship here with that passage in Second Peter. We're waiting. The promise to Abraham was for the nations. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. And we see, again, here this ultimate fulfillment uh, at the end of time. So this new creation is going to be uh, multi-ethnic, right? It's going to include every tribe and tongue. We see that early in Revelation as well with this huge heavenly choir of every tribe, every tongue. All ethnicities, all cultures have been redeemed and, uh, and lived together in true cross-cultural harmony uh, in a way that we can only dream about. But that certainly, I think, hits a need that we feel so strongly, certainly in this nation, today, this idea of cross-cultural harmony, true diversity living together, not separating out, but living together in, in actual real understanding, acceptance, affirmation uh, of one another. We see that ultimately coming to fruition here uh, at the end of time. Great. Let's see, gates. Let me hit that, and now I'll give you a final big picture, okay? This reference to gates, that doesn't make any sense to us now. Our cities don't have gates, right? But back in ancient times, cities would be walled and would have gates as a means of protection. Uh, and, and during the day, those gates would be open, and at night, those gates would close because that's when your marauders and your thieves and your bandits and whatever would be out and in force, Right? So it's a very clear night-day reference here again. The darkness, the night is gone, has been banished, has been eradicated. And so the gates will never close to this city. Now, I don't think that what he's saying here is that this is, is just so much a geographical location as it is a reference to the openness of, of access that we will all have to the Lord, and that there's no need to close these gates because the things that the gates were to protect us from, which dwelled at night, have been eradicated. So, uh, again, an amplification of these thoughts from verses 1 through 4, right, or, or from chapter 20 as well, that those, those elements have been judged and no longer are a threat to us. And we now live, and here's the big picture, the humans of all cultures dwell on the earth physically in a fully restored creation, in fully restored, open, free fellowship with the God of creation. That is that ultimate picture that we're waiting for. That is, is what Revelation is pointing to. And John, at the time when he's writing, right, he's writing to people who are being killed for their faith. And he's saying, 
this is worth it. It's worth it. Your name is written in the book of life. Um, this is your future destiny. This is our shared future de destiny. <sighs> all right, let's all take a deep breath. Everyone doing okay? Your brain's smoking a little bit. That was a lot, I know. Um, and that was only eight verses. <laughs> so, a final thought. A final, final thought, right? This new creation is not just a future event, okay? Not just a future event. Yes, it is a future event, but it is not only a future event, right? It has already become. And I'm going to point us to one example of that, okay? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The Apostle Paul is using the exact same language in this verse that John used to talk about the end of time, revelation, right? We also see this, this language mirrored in the Old Testament, in, in, uh, especially in Isaiah. That exact same language. So, the point here is, if you are in Christ, right, that is, if you are trusting, if you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, not your own works, not your own righteousness, not your own piousness, um, if you have trusted in Christ, for your salvation, you are already a new creation. That which is going to happen at the end of time has already happened in your heart. That's what Paul is saying, is, is saying here, right? That your existence has already been transformed. This was a huge realization for me probably about 13 years into my Christian life, all right? I didn't, I didn't get this at all. I didn't understand what it meant for Christ to have accomplished things on my behalf. I just, I just didn't get it. Thirteen years. That's a long time. Um, and when this came on, when this light came on, I, I'll confess, I, reached, I had reached a point of spiritual exhaustion. I would read something like Galatians 2.20 that says, I have been crucified with Christ. And I'd go, okay, I need to be crucified with Christ. I'm going to be crucified with Christ. Here I go. I'm going to be crucified with Christ. All right? And my perception of God was that Jesus was kind of like a password into the club, but I was sort of like the guy who'd be like, hey, hey, can I come? And they were like, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, um, the password is Jesus, but the E's, you know, like a three, and, and you're in, okay? And, uh, and that the Lord had been like, yeah, I said I would, and, you know, bless his heart, I need to let him in. Uh, honestly, that, that, that sounds, I, I'm actually not being melodramatic here. I think if I, had, if I had really laid out my idea of what it was to be a Christian for those first 13 years, that's what it was. To try, now that I'm in the club, I got to try to live up to the standard. I got to try to be good enough. I got to try to not embarrass everybody. I got to try to not embarrass myself. I got to try to make God look good. And I got to try to not get myself kicked out. That was, that was where... I was. And about 13 years in, I reached a point of absolute and total spiritual exhaustion because that's a miserable way to live. <laughs> and, um, and I was a good kid, right? I, was, I wasn't a troublemaker. Um, and yet I was spiritually utterly exhausted. I came to a point of realizing someone shared with me the idea that God didn't just give you the password and leave you alone. No. He made you a new creation. This renewing, transforming work has already been done, has already been accomplished 
on my behalf, on your behalf, on the behalf of those who are in Christ. <coughs> Scripture says that those who are in Christ are no longer sinners. They don't, we don't use that word for sinners. And yes, of course, we still struggle with sin. I'm not saying that, that, we're, that we're living perfect existences. But Scripture gives us a new name, and Scripture calls us saints, all right? Not Mother Teresa, not Saint Francis or whatever, but saints, ones who have been set apart for God, and our, our, our fundamental identity and essence has been transformed. So when we indulge in sin, we're actually acting at odds with our new nature. We're acting at odds with how we've been created, recreated to be. It's like spiritual schizophrenia, right? So there is power available to us to be set free from sin, from the, from, the, from the bondage of sin. Will you live a perfect life? No. Do you have to live in bondage to whatever it is that holds you? No. If you are bound by uh, pornography, if you're bound by uh, secret addiction, um, chemical addiction of some kind, if you're bound by uh, anger and resentment and bitterness, those things do not have to be your master. In fact, Scripture tells us that for those of us who are in Christ, there is freedom available. Sometimes that freedom is a process. Sometimes that freedom, usually that freedom involves, almost always that freedom involves telling somebody about it, telling your secrets. Um, and it might involve counseling and prayer and discipleship and time. But there is freedom available to you because you are a new creation in Christ. All right. I actually have more that I want to say. But I'm going to stop there. That was, that was kind of the point I wanted to get to as far as the future being now. I'm going to pray for us. Uh, we're going to sing, and then we have a, a little something we need to do with a couple of our staff members uh, before we dismiss. So let me, let me pray for us, and we will go from there. Our Father, we acknowledge you as the one who sits upon the throne in purity in authority, in power, in righteousness, before you all creation flees and is consumed. We stand before you without excuse. We stand before you without hope, except that you have provided a means for us to be rescued through your Son. And we thank you. We are grateful that by your grace, we can become new creations by your power, by what you have already accomplished on our behalf. We have been, been made, those who are in Christ have been made new creations. Father, it is my prayer now that our minds, we would renew our minds. We would actively set about thinking differently, thinking in line with what your scripture teaches us. Growing in gratitude, growing in, in resemblance to your son, not because we're, we're bootstrapping, not because we're mustering things up, but because you have made us new and we're simply surrendering and living in conjunction, in accordance with what you have already done. Thank you. And we look forward to the day when we will stand with the gates of the city wide open in your overwhelming light and we won't be consumed but we will be there with open, unhindered fellowship with, with our brothers and sisters from around the globe um, basking in this amazing, amazing, renewed creation. 
come, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.